Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. And welcome to season four of the Undermine Podcast by Osiris Media. I am Tom Marshall, your host of these proceedings. And we're near the middle of our season at episode 21. And it's a season where we're exploring fish in the 90s. And we visit some epic, epic shows of the early 90s. And we're getting closer and closer to our goal, which is the famous Fall 97 tour. Um, so today, Fish has sailed over to Europe for a winter tour um, in early 97. And our show is in Amsterdam at the famous Paradiso. And to help me explore this European jaunt, I'm here with the amiable and jaunty King of Osiris, my co-host, RJB. <laughs> Thank Hi, RJ. you so much. Thanks so much for that introduction, Tom. You're welcome. Um, this is our, our first show of 97. And in fact, the, the band's fourth show of 1997, you mentioned this, this uh, Europe tour started in London, and then went to Brussels, then Cologne, and then and then in, uh, made the stop in Amsterdam, you weren't at these shows, right? No, I, I, I showed up in Europe a little bit later. Later. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is two seventeen ninety seven. It has a huge debut, um, which we're going to talk about as well as uh, the first hints of the 97 sound. And Tom will tell us about our guest who is a, a wonderful uh, person to discuss this show with or any show with really. But um, first I should say, if you're enjoying what we're doing, please consider supporting our new Osiris premium offering, which you can join for just a few dollars a month. You can get bonus episodes of HF pod and undermine ad-free episodes. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Under the Scales, discounts on merch, meet and greets, AMAs, and more. That's seven things. At least seven things. Where can check you get out, that, RJ? Check out osirispod.com slash premium or click on the link in the show notes. Awesome. Please do that. And um, I'm going to introduce the guest, RJ, because he's in the waiting room. 
I have ways of knowing whether or not someone's in there and he's definitely in there. Um, and so when you guys, uh, I was going to say, RJ, when you guys came up with this list and our guests had something to do with coming up with this list of shows that we're going to cover for this season, I was puzzled a little by the focus on the European tours, because in my mind, Europe, Europe was kind of like a breather between important American tours, but it, that's exactly it. And I get it now in retrospect. I mean, Europe, Europe, I, I was in Europe as much as I could be. And I had young kids in a corporate career, uh, if you could call it that. Um, but for me, it was always a playground. And for Fish, it was kind of more than that. It was a place for debuts and experimenting with new styles and stretching out. And today's guest, Brian Brinkman, is a perfect person to analyze exactly what the band is up to in this show. And I also know why Brian wanted to be involved with this show in particular and it's the amazing jam in the second set that includes the stunning debut of Karini. But enough of that for now. Um, Brian is an Undermine executive producer and an Osiris podcaster of note, uh, formerly the host of Beyond the Pond. Please welcome from cold storage as I open the vault, Brian Brinkman. How's it going, guys? Pretty good was the... Uh, was it cold in there or, or are you fine from being in the waiting room? Uh, it was the freezer, but I've been <laughs> unleashed and uh, much like, much like tweezer, I've been put on ice for 1997, but, but the exploration is here. <laughs> Look who's in the freezer. So um, <laughs> fish in the nineties, Brian, um, and we've been listening to a lot of shows as you well know, and it's striking how the band is changing in the mid nineties. They're getting, both very comfortable with with their magic ability to communicate and improvise, you know, like wizards on stage, um, while adopting a new style of play and clearly emanating nothing but like fun and happiness from stage. But in Europe, it seems almost like they dial up the fun quotient even higher, if that's possible. Would you agree? I would. I mean, I think... I was thinking a lot about the idea of um, this particular show, two seventeen ninety seven, being in Europe, and and the idea of this show being a part of their European tour, and the idea that I don't really know when it started, but I know I relate to it. The idea of going over to the old country and the old the old world as a way to collect to learn a little bit more about yourself, to unleash aspects of yourself that may not. Uh, come out in America. Um, I, I know I spent a lot of time in Europe in college, and there's a sense of like, you know, you came from here, um, but you're not a part of this place anymore. You're you're an American, and so you can show a side of yourself that, in some cases, is more experimental, more you know, leaning into uh, um, kind of your inhibitions while also kind of unleashing a fun side. And I feel at this point where fish is at in early 1997, they're leaning into that as hard as possible. They're, they're outside of the spotlight. They're not having to play arenas or large venues or cater to their fan base in any sort of way whatsoever. They can kind of just freely experiment, um, in, in both a way that as we'll talk about, it's very dangerous. It's Kind of terrifying at times. Uh, it, it requires a lot of courage, but I think to your point, Tom, it's it's really fun at the same time. 
I like the old country aspect and, and, um, of course, you know, some people have an old country that's not Europe, but, but I think for the band that, that does make sense. And, um, it's also like they're playing for audiences that are so much smaller. There's like something is, is, you know, a flip is switched when they go to Europe and you're right. There's, uh, maybe their inhibitions are, are, put on hold or something but it, it's crazy europe was also about debuts you know covers like um soul shakedown party and love me and little red rooster um but also fish songs uh, like we're going to talk about carini um and my soul and uh earlier i think walfredo and a little bit later beauty of my dreams and and for me debuts are always exciting and it's of course great to be there when they happen um but brian in your fish studies and particularly of the '90s, does dropping too many debuts into the playlist um, disappoint fans at all? You know, like could it potentially dilute the set list with with too many new songs? That's a loaded question. That, like, I I I think yes, it can create disappointing aspects depending on the listener. I think for me personally, just speaking as how I like to hear fish. I, I always want to hear the new ideas that they have and kind of hear the new um, songs that are kicking around in their heads and hear how that both inspires them to jam and to experiment in ways that they may not have with an older song where they kind of have not necessarily a formulaic approach to jamming it, but they know how to get out of the song. Um, I also think, you know, Fish is... Fish never stops moving, and it's it's where we get the ups and downs and the the really great periods of the band and the peaks, but where we also get you know potentially challenging transitional periods. And I think the band at this point in early 1997 was coming out of one of those where they had had this great peak experience in late 1995. There was this question of what's next. There were some amazing moments in 1996. Um, and going into 1997, as I've always read about, they they write these songs, Rocco William, Walfredo, Carini, as kind of collaborative efforts. And I don't think they necessarily, from what I've read, you may know, you probably know better than I do. The impression I have is they didn't necessarily write these songs to be proper songs, but to basically serve as a launch pad for something else, be it Rocco William that allows them to rotate and play different instruments. Walfredo does that as well. Carini, that it's so clearly a jab at a heavy metal song. But as we hear in this first performance, it kind of cracks open this wormhole, if you will, into so many different possibilities for where fish can go musically. Um, Brian, you little do people know, I think that you were the originator of the 25 shows of the nineties list leading up to fall 97. Um, so everyone can congratulate Brian for coming up with a great, <laughs> a great, amazing, um, list, but why, why this show of these, these shows, you know, there's a, what of, I don't know, 10 or 20 shows right from, from that month or so, um, in Europe. Why this one? Yeah, I was thinking about this show as I was listening to it over the last few days. Um, it, it, just to provide a little bit more context, like what Fish did from 1995 to 1997 is my favorite thing that any band can do. Um, and I think about it in terms of like the Beatles making Rubber Soul and Revolver, uh, U2 making Octoon Baby, 
Neil Young, the Ditch trilogy, Bob Dylan, every time he decided to throw away what was working and try something completely new that he wasn't necessarily experienced in. Um, Fish walks off stage on December 31st, 1995, and there's this alternate history I always think about, that that is just the band that we get. And and you think about bands from the 90s that that last, you know, Fish, Pearl Jam, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like a lot of the what you go and see Pearl Jam or the Red Hot Chili Peppers for today is to hear songs still from the 1990s. Um, Fish consciously decided after that show it, it it would appear to change and they they knew that they had just had this peak experience and they spend a lot of 1996 kind of playing in a similar style to the best moments of 1995 this big maximalist groove very tight um didn't take as many risks as they did in 1995 they have this amazing experience on halloween where they find these interlocking grooves that allow them to play in a more democratic style, which then blossoms throughout November 96, my argument for one of the most underrated months in fish history. They have the celebratory New Year's Eve run, but then they go to Europe and, you know, the first couple of shows in Europe are, uh, they're, they're, they're good shows. Um, as you talked about, Tom, there's some debuts there that would continue throughout the remainder of the year. It appears around this time that they've got a list of I think 30 to 50 songs that they've decided to scrap for the majority of 1997. Um, songs like Tweezer would be played once throughout the fall, the, the winter tour, and they wouldn't appear until August. Um, and obviously they're going to write all these new songs in the springtime that are going to debut over the summer Europe tour. This show though, for me, it, especially in the second set, it feels like that demarcation line where all of this stuff that they'd been working on for the last year and change suddenly unveils itself to them, both in a song like Down With Disease that had become a staple of their live repertoire, had really blossomed as a jam vehicle over the previous year, um, but most specifically in a song like Karini that you know just goes in places that it sounds a part of 1995 at its best, but it also has this very creepy uh underworld type of sound to it that we come to know and love in 1997 um and it, it just this show sounds like the band equal parts in evolution but also fully realizing what is possible based on the risks that they've taken and the path that they are charting forward um okay thanks for that brian i know tom i want to ask you before we were talking about debuts and i think you have a you have a story about a debut in, involving Trey's mom, right? I don't that that was that was from '97, but but not not this show. Yeah, no, I I showed up in Europe um, later for the summer tour, and uh, uh, I think what you're talking about was sort of a mistake she made. It wasn't an actual debut, but basically, uh, this is uh, in Dublin, uh, and um, Dinah, Trey's mom, and I were there for the two shows. Uh, before Albert Hall, we wanted to go to the Albert Hall uh, show in in London, but in Ireland they played um, when the circus comes to town, and this wasn't the debut of that because it had been played, um, but it was the first time Dinah had heard it, and I remember I watched her, and she was right next to me, and she was actually moved, she was kind of crying, um, mm. and, and it was she she loved it so much, 
And I think she thought in the spirit of new fish songs that it was a fish song. And she turned to me very emotionally and she said something like, uh, oh, my God, Tom, you and Trey have outdone yourselves. <laughs> and I quickly let her know that we, we didn't write it. But man, how I wished at that moment that we did. That's my debut story. That's amazing. That is great. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny. Just, just as an aside, like my introduction to Fish was Bittersweet Motel, the, the documentary, and they play that song in there. And I remember being like, I've seen all this goofy, nonsensical, amazing stuff from this band throughout this documentary. But then they just played that song. Like if they wrote that song, I have to listen more to this band. It wouldn't be for like months later that I found out that it was not, a, it was a cover as well. So, uh, one thing Dinah and I have in common. Yeah, <laughs> you both misinterpreted <laughs> it as a different direction for fish. <laughs> and you and you both love Trey, so that's good. Yes, sure. there we go. <laughs> um, all right, I think we'll, we'll take a quick break, and then we're going to dive into the show. Um, we got the context, now we need to talk about the, the jams. So we'll be back in one second. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, distrokid. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. And we're back with the famous Brian Brinkman. Brian, um, this start, this is the really the start of the 97 sound, right? These shows, we talked a little bit about this, but I remember getting these February 97 tapes in, you know, late spring. And it was just an exciting time to be a fan and get, get new music, but also, I guess in retrospect, we're like turning over a new leaf, you know, there, and there's like this huge jam segment in set two, but this show, do you feel like this show is more about the, the improv and the music, or is it more about the idea that this is like the beginning of a new era? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, because, you know, for me, the music without the the improvisation going where it went um i don't think that they realize you know how 
much they have uh, accomplished over the last year, and especially the last five or six months in terms of this really conscious evolution that they they seem to be going under. Um, You know, I also... Like, I think without this, I don't know what happens at the Hamburg show and who knows what happens when they get back to America and, you know, songs like Ghost and Limb by Limb and Birds of a Feather are are being written. And these songs that are, um, you know, so rooted in the kind of talking heads style, um, I, I think as well you know, who knows what happened at set break, who knows what's going through the band members' heads during the second set. But there seems to be, especially in this Carini, this realization of, we were talking about at the top, the fun aspect of what they were going under, where like there's a partnership that these guys are working through. They're not just, they're not evolving so that one band member sounds better than the rest. They're almost evolving in the opposite reason, reason where Trey wants to fit in more with the band and it's something that, you know, they've been on the road for 14 years, basically, at this point in time. And I I, I would imagine the music that they're playing, at, especially in this Carini, but the disease as well, uh, almost seemed insurmountable because and, and unapproachable from a musical standpoint, because you're almost combining the throw any idea at the wall experimentation of summer 1995 that really challenged and and aggravated a lot of fans with the funk of Remain in Light and the kind of maximalist sound of December 1995. And that, when it all comes together, is just really exciting to hear for the first time. Yeah. And I mean, this, this venue, like a lot of venues in Europe, is a, it's a converted church, right? And uh, I mean, yeah. they played three shows this at this venue and spoiler alert, we're going to talk about all three of them on this season. (laughs) I don't know if there's a venue with like a higher percentage of awesome shows than this, but what's the, when you're going into the first set or what what are some of your highlights from the first set, but also like, how do you think a venue like this kind of affects, uh, affects the playing? I think, you know, from a first set standpoint, my big highlights are the, the debut of soul shakedown party, which, you know, is is one of those kind of magical covers that had it come along a year or two years early, I don't think that they would have, I don't think they knew how to play reggae as well as they do starting in 1997. And so it really fits the sound. It, I would imagine, fits the space of the venue. It sounds really good. It's one of those songs that nowadays, even when it opens a show, you kind of know that we're in for something from the band. Listening to songs like Divided Sky and Gaiuti, I was really interesting uh, just just going back to this because those are, you know, two composed songs that really feel like a past era of fish when you consider 1997, but they're playing with so much energy and, you know, they're still attacking that approach with so much uh, um, kind of earnest, like there, there's a real earnest like approach to, to playing these composed pieces but um 
my my biggest highlight, I think, from this first set is the Billy Breathes solo. It's you you hear, I mean, that's a really emotional song in and of itself, just lyrically and just as a rooted song. But then when you throw this solo into it, and Trey's been playing this now for what two years at this point in time, you really hear him kind of reaching these depths and and pushing that song in a, in a very different direction. It's it's something that uh, I think is something to really behold. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. That's really that's a really nice segment. And I think the the bathtub gin is the only other thing. I mean, you know, you get these like kind of I mean, like the rup gin was was the fall before this, right? And I think yeah, we've talked about some of the bathtub gins from you know the ninety three and ninety five. Of course, there's a lot, but this is when you really get that like driving jam that that still exists now when they play bathtub gin. I really love that into into Gogi to close the set. Um, but yeah, that the Billy Breeze, I mean, I think it's also like, you know, 1500 person venue and, you know, there's like some room for some of this, this stuff, you know, which, which is great, but it is like a little bit of a new sound, even from 96, I think. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, it's, it's wild. I mean, this is the first 97 show that you guys are talking about here in a season dedicated to fall 1997. It feels like we crossed a threshold in a lot of cases. Um, one of the underrated aspects of 1997 to me is the ballad playing. And I feel like the best years of fish have really, really strong ballad playing. We talked about this a lot together uh, regarding 2021 fish, where it seemed like the band was putting something extra into these ballads. They weren't just like a pause before they move into the next phase of the set. And you think about what the Billy breathes here. You think about what the cast band that's going to close out the set. These are songs that, I don't think people initially reach to when they think about 1997. It's probably lower on the list in terms of what they want to hear, but these songs really complement a set and really offer kind of a, another side to the music that the band is putting forward and really showcase the peak that we're at. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I I think um just thinking about the lonely of, uh, 2021, yeah. it's sort of a similar similar role um all right the second set it it doesn't start as like a, a jamming set squirming coil is sort of like a, a an odd second set opener concerning what comes next but brian take us through this down with disease carini taste down with disease segment which is just a really wow what a stunning set of music so i think this does a couple of things that i, I think are worth highlighting first and foremost um you know if you look at fish throughout the 1990s and their evolution, starting in like August of 1993, they start to realize like what a couplet means within a set. And, you know, having two, three, four songs that really fit together as a segment. And in 1994, you get a lot of these like, um, like 622.94 is a great example where it's just songs weaving in and out of each other. And, you know, the songs may only last for a minute and then they go into a completely new song, but it's this whole contained idea that 
you as the listener can't just go back to your tape or to your CD, to the streaming device and press play on one song. You have to hear the whole thing. And, you know, as they move into 1995 and the jams get longer, um, there are, you know, these segments of it, but it's rarely, if ever, the full set. I think like the Fleezer set is a really good example. Um, there's a there's a show from Raleigh that has, a it, it's a really good complete set with a Runaway Gym and a You Enjoy Myself and a few other things in there. Um, but 1997 really marks the point where like that becomes the expectation of a great set. And as you know, you guys are going to talk about here as you get in the fall, the four song set starts to appear and the idea that like you don't need any fat in the set. You just need these four to five songs and the band walks off stage, even if it's only been just over an hour. We as the listener are completely satisfied. And this set, even though it starts so oddly with the squirming coil, it feels like the beginning of it. And it feels like the starting point of this isn't just a set of music that's going to give you a variety. This is a set of music that is going to tell a narrative that's going to, you know, via the music instead of just the songs is going to elicit a number of emotional reactions from you, the listener. And by the end of it, you're going to feel like you saw this kind of climax, this rising action, the, you know, the, the, the conclusion of it. And, and you're going to be able to go back and listen to this in the same way that you would listen to a complete album where you press play and you're not skipping ahead. You're not moving in any sort of way. So, I mean, I think for me, when I think about this set, it's one of those, I have to listen to, all in one piece, even though there are distinct highlights, I would say rooted in the disease and the, and the Carini. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's, there's a lot going on here. I will say that that's the, it was the first squirming coil second set opener since September 25th, 1991. So, like wow. it, you know, and had been played obviously a lot in between um, the down with disease jam, I think is um, more of like a prelude of the Carini, you know, there's, and, and I don't know, the funk is like so, um, it feels so rudimentary, you know? It's, it's like, me- it's, it's not, mellow. And, and it's in, really mellow. In terms of like preceding Carini, it's almost like the thing you'd think of last, right? It's yes. like a real slow, rudimentary funk jam. And, and and you don't even think that that could happen after Down With Disease, which is so fast. And the way that they're playing it in the mid 90s is so fast. settles into such a beautiful jam and then slapped in the face with Carini. It's funny. Cause like, you know, so much of Fish's jamming prior to this felt, uh, disorienting in some ways. And you think about a lot of those big jams from 94 and 95, and it was almost like it, it, it had the same elements of like the dark stars that the Grateful Dead would play in 1972 through 1974, where there was almost a sense of like, can we, 
get as far away from each other and still be connected as as a band and so like there's a lot of disorienting music there's a lot of um you know experimentation that's overtly there to almost sound amusical and when they get into December 1995, there's these, you know, big bulbous grooves and it's not really challenging music. It's really, really fun, but it's also a band like super tight, super locked in. But like, I don't think anyone would call like the 12195 Mike song funk or the Orlando stash funk, even though they have like these rhythmic elements and coming out of remain in light, it sounds like the band really realizes that like, if we play these simple grooves and we're all locked in, we're going to combine this experimentation with this music that people really want to listen back to. And, you know, down with disease, you think about this version, you think about uh, the Raleigh version, the great went uh, the MSG version. There's a bunch of others that I'm, you know, just leaving off, but like 1997 is going to be a showcase year for this song as what you were describing, Tom, that like mellow funk groove sort of sense whereas Carini sounds like holy shit not only can we play that but also like we can incorporate the fun into this and we can really challenge each other the way that we do in rehearsals in a way that is going to be um i don't know it's going to be what leads to this this year being so celebrated 25 years later yeah and the the Carini has so much going in there you know um there there's there's the like it's rhythmic, there's funk, there's some just wild parts, there's some really nice mellow part. I mean, it's it's really multifaceted. It's interesting, we think of Carini as such a jam vehicle now because it so often is. And I think in the early days, like between 97 and when they came back in 2010, there weren't that many versions of, of Carini that were really jammed out. It's sort of like, just in terms of like long versions, like this is you know, the only 20 minute version until 2017, you know, which is sort of wild to think about because we think about it as a jam vehicle. But for some reason, like this, this night, it it was just the perfect, it was like the perfect vehicle for whatever, whatever they were feeling, you know, um, as opposed to like a tweezer, like could have served yeah. the same purpose, you know. It's wild. Like I'm just looking at the jam chart and between 1997 and 2010, there's three additional jam charted versions. There's the new, the 122898 version, which gets kind of dark and eerie, but then there's these two that were released on live fish, 614, 2000 and 914, 2000 that never stray from Carini. They're just really well played within there. So they get the jam chart, but yeah, it's kind of a song that you would think a song that's debuted like this would then just be in the rotation, but it's played until three, one, and then not again until 1230, 97. It's just kind of looked at as this like ugly stepchild that, you know, was, you know, played, it served a purpose. And then the band was like, okay, we can probably write better songs than that. So let's just not bring that to America. But now it's like one of those songs that this, you know, you hear those first power chords, um, like they open the, 
Dick's rain delay show with it because they knew that like these power chords are going to send the crowd into a frenzy. Everyone loves yelling these lyrics and you know, it's become just a fish staple at this point. Yeah, it's, it's man. And by the way, that 1230-97, which we're, we're not going to get to because fall 97 ended before December, but that, that 1230-97 encore with Karini, Black Eyed Katie, Sneak and mm. Sally, Frankenstein, classic, all-timer. All right, that was a long, a long diversion on Karini, but Tom, is there anything else from this set or from from that kind of segment that that stuck out to you listening back? No, no. I mean, this 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 whole show is about the sleeping monkey, right? At the end. <laughs> Well, maybe not. It always is. It always is. It is a good point because Sleepy Monkey will always appear at, you know, great shows. And it's they they put it right there at the start of the encore here. (laughs) It's a good way for us to stop. Uh, Thank you, uh, Brian, for your incredible insight and analysis. And you and you and RJ make a great uh, uh, team to to analyze any show. I, I love listening to you do it for many fish shows. Um, but that is it for us today. Uh, thank you, Brian. And I also want to give a quick shout out to our friend uh, Cash or Trade, and they're the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. Check them out at cashortrade.org. And. Um, uh, Yes. Before you wrap up, Tom, you, you've given a lot of shout outs to listeners and your friends who you know are listening. And I just want to, I haven't done that yet this season. I just want to say hello to Jeff Carroll, who's a longtime HF pod and undermine listener. He's been emailing me after many of these episodes and and loving, loving the season and, you know, encouraging us on. So thanks, Jeff. Um, thanks for doing that. And Brian, you're going to have to, you're going to have to come back again soon. I would love to. Brian, you're always welcome. And yes, thank you, Jeff Carroll, for listening. And thanks to everyone out there for joining us. And remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen and watch. And until then, blaze on. Osiris. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.